0: So hello and welcome to Inspiration and Adaptation, shared second and fourth Fridays from Bunnell Street Art Center. I'm Asia Freeman, and in this program we're exploring artists' innovations and adaptations in response to these times. Today we're discussing land acknowledgement, so I want to invite you, wherever you are, to begin with me by taking a moment to focus on your connection to the land beneath you. I invite you to close your eyes and place your feet on the floor comfortably and ground to the earth. Consider how the land sustains and connects us, reaches from beneath the building where you are and wraps to touch us all. The Nay people name the place where my awareness of land acknowledgement begins at get meaning at the water, by the bay called Kachikmak, by the Supyak people. These people have been caring for this land for thousands of years before settlers came and erected a trading post in 1937, by the water, a building which now houses Benel Street Art Center. I'm Asia Freeman, Artistic Director of Benel Street Art Center, and joining me today are Argent Kavaznikov, artist, member of Ninilchik Village Tribe, also a board member of Pinnell Street Art Center, our president, and Zorae Monroe, an artist who's been trained in architecture. She grew up in Homer, and she's also a board member at Nell. Today we're talking about how land acknowledgement can spark other ways of knowing, being, and listening into action. Arjun and Thore are each gonna share the significance of media and materials, spatial organization and structures in terms of land acknowledgement. And so I just wanna say welcome to both of you today. I'm very excited to speak with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, looking forward to this. So I'd love to begin kind of where each of you began. Um, Argent, perhaps you would start by telling us how, in in the way that really makes sense to you, how land acknowledgement became um, a part of your consciousness. When it did, and how um, it inspired you to kind of grow into the work that you're doing today. Maybe you could give us a little bit of a journey or orientation.
1: Sure. Um... I think what made me really interested in um, in the idea was just how foreign it sounded to me, and it still seems kind of odd. Like, um, and and because I, I can tell that there's something really cool about it, which is it brings people awareness of a lot of historical labels and kind of clarifying some timelines that there's some different perspectives on timelines and of course the idea of who people are now which is really 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 important and and that's something that that i'm really excited about Um, more people learning is about contemporary um issues and identity and and kind of the status of things as they are. But what really inspired me to really embrace it was just because it was so foreign and it does feel kind of like
2: an alien,
1: (laughs) an an alien um, uh, way of looking at things because now that a lot of institutions have started man acknowledgement processes and they are crafting these statements and making these gestures, It feels, um, I feel the same way about it as I did growing up when I would go to um, either some event or gathering of some kind that, where people would recite the Lord's Prayer, for example. And so I feel the same kind of distance from that. Whereas if it's not something I'm familiar with or have grown up with, it feels the same kind of. Like, learning how to navigate, maybe it's not so much the literal words that are important, it's the fact, it's the sentiment of what goes into it that's more important. And So I'm kind of focusing on that and trying to really embrace the sentiment uh, far above the language because people can sit forever and try to come up with language and how to Phrase a lot of these thoughts and ideas and gestures and feelings, but that's kind of inconsequential. I think that those evolve through time and they will change and adjust and depending on circumstance. But the sentiment is what is really important, and I almost want to challenge people that have brought this idea of land acknowledgement to be. Um, as much as it is encouraging people to be open-minded about where they're settled, where they are, um, I really want people to understand that they need to allow the people being acknowledged to be open-minded about who they are as well. Um, it, it works both ways. It's very it's very fluid. It's mm-hmm. very uh, not static so it has to be based on real relationships and real yeah. conversation
0: yeah can i just ask you a couple questions about that so you know mm-hmm. you you grew up you were born in homer i know and you're you grew up as a member of the nunotic village tribe but sort of implied mm-hmm. by what you're saying is that like the practice of of land acknowledgement was not something that um, What's with happening within the tribe. In other words, it's it's a process. It's sort of like this um, process that's happening um, outwardly. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's something that I'm learning, I wanted to to sort of digress for a moment and say that it's, mm-hmm. you know, settlers come and it's on settlers and and certainly historically, white-led institutions to acknowledge the land i mean it's it's implicit in a sense from uh from from is that what you're getting at or you know my understanding this right it's, implicit it's little in bit, a little bit yeah a little bit yeah because a lot of those
1: those feelings and ideas um they're not something and this is just and that's another thing it's based this is based on my experience in my very small cultural group which is very unique and in asia knows all about that. She's been such a big help with a lot of our projects and kind of bringing up some of these ideas. And, and so just from that very, very, very tiny lens, that's what exactly what I feel, is that a lot of these ideas and concepts are things that maybe are not outwardly expressed or put into words, but they're just things that you learn and, and know, and that's in the back of your your brain. And so it is kind of strange to see these new groups and institutions come along, um, many of whom don't have any preexisting relationship in, in any major way and try to craft these um, statements and, and processes because, the sentiment is very good. It's very positive. But at the same time, like I said, it needs to be based on a real relationship that you have. That's what's going to give it meaning. That's what's going to give it power. Um, If if that's based on a real working relationship, Um, it's not something that would be... Somebody could just study. Somebody could just invite somebody in um, to learn about it, and then make a statement, and then that's the end. It's like you no, know, that needs to be the beginning of a conversation first, and yeah, really Thank basing you. it on that. Mm-hmm. So, person to person is is really important, and that's that's where these things should start in these ideas, because as time goes on, then they do seem less strange. They do seem less like what are those people doing now? (laughs)
0: Sure, that is what it
1: feels like sometimes.
0: Yeah. And I want to, um, at this, you know, juncture, just invite Thore to to speak up because now we're talking about a woman who grew up on this land and does work this land, uh, you know, fishing, uh, building, gardening, et cetera. That's all part of your, your childhood. So maybe you could, sort of orient us to kind of like how you came to a consciousness of land acknowledgement and why it attracts you in, and we'll go back to you argent sister but sorry um, please um
2: yeah I think the the first land acknowledgement that I remember was um a handful of years ago at a lecture in the University of Washington and the person opened it acknowledging the Duwamish people and um said that you know the lecture hall was in a a place currently known as Seattle. And something about that phrasing was really evocative to me because it, Arjun, like you were saying, it kind of calls this longer scale of time. uh, And, you know, that Seattle is not just permanently and always Seattle, but that it was once called different things. And some of those names have probably been lost. Um, But by making that kind of acknowledgement, it also opened up, a potential future where there are other names for Seattle and other um, configurations and social and cultural entanglements and um, economic structures. And, you know, it just opens up all of these radical ideas. Um, so, in that regard, I think land acknowledgement is really exciting because it kind of cuts away this um, linear sense of time uh, as progress, which is, you know, a very Western concept. Um, And um, I guess I could share my screen because I was recently invited to participate in um, a land acknowledgement design challenge with a group of um, conceptual designers, um, this group called the Office of Uncertainty Research. And um, the challenge was to make their, it's formed by a group of architects and so, um, they're trying to take land acknowledgement outside of just the verbal acknowledgement before you know lecture or something and into the real world and so they were calling for these one foot by one foot um, land acknowledgements on your private property um, and so this is this was my response to that and it says Klyana and Chinan and they're the two ways to say thank you um, in the languages that that come from this landscape Um, And a lot of the concepts from this work came from um, a lot of the discussions on this podcast, actually, um, with Melissa Shaganoff and um, particular uh, one comment Joel Isaac made about uh, how seagulls actually have different dialects in different areas and how there's actually like language and sounds that come from the landscape itself. And so I wanted to, um, think about language in that way, um, uh, to kind of look at this land that I know so intimately um, through the words that came from this place. And um, Melissa Shaganoff also really, um, through her workshops and and the discussions she's had here, she really kind of centers land acknowledgement as being a uh, gratitude act, um, a gratitude act towards the Indigenous people that have stewarded this land for so, so long, you know, When you really start to think about the scale of time and um, compared to the, you know, the Western experience in Alaska, it's just staggering how long humans have lived um, in relation to the landscape here. Um,
0: and in and- this image, you're you're showing a painting that you did on pieces of coal, is that right? So compressed time. <laughs>
2: Yeah, totally. So, you know, part of this is acknowledging the indigenous people and also acknowledging the land um, and the materials and the different kind of lives that live um, in this place. And uh, yeah, I think that's, for me, land acknowledgement is about kind of recognizing the agency outside of the human. And so these are two materials that are from this specific site. Um, There's the compressed coal, which is, peat that has been um, hardened into this really beautiful material um, and then the red is um, crushed fired clay um, in Kachemak Bay we have all of these red ochre clay rocks that most people who walk the beach are familiar with because they're some people call them chalk rocks um, and so I made paint out of it and uh, the, I think the colors have a lot of things to say to about time and connection to bodies, you know, human bodies and blood and, um, earth bodies. Um, yeah. And so, you know, this is, these are two little signs that live at my home and they can be a part of a conversation and just, you know, growing up here, I didn't know actually the specific names of, um, the Dena'ina people, um, and that the Niltric that we live on the Niltric tribal lands. I didn't know that. um, and the Sipia people. And so. Just having these two words and the sentiment attached to them and the history and people attached to them, I think, is one way that land acknowledgement for me can kind of move out of just the conceptual.
1: May I respond to this image? I just wanted to say this is a really good example of, um, of, of the evolution process of land acknowledgement because the what thori has done with this is it, and and i'm gonna I, I don't mean to pick on you personally thori i think you're a very good, a very humble and willing um participant but when I go back to the idea of how it needs to be based on person to person relationships um first, a lot of people don't know that that for example, the phrase Chinan, that's more of a Natsu uh, upper inlet expression that's not historically used here. And a lot of people here don't know any um, of the old Dena'ina language. It's It's been very thoroughly colonized um, here. Uh, there, most people would know a few expressions here and there, but not much. Very trace. and Also, I have a very complicated relationship with the Sukpiak language because even though that is uh, ethnically a part of my heritage, you go back into our history locally and you'll find people like my grandfather and people his generation, they remember the Sukpiak culture as the first colonizers. So you go back that far. And they'll talk about them separately as if they're the Russians or the Americans. So it's kind of funny how a lot of these things don't seem to come up until after the fact. And that's why I really advocate for people in organizations and and making personal gestures to really learn about the people who are there and what their history is and what their what their perspective is, because it's really interesting where all those ideas meet. So it's sort of like, for me, looking at these pieces as, as powerful as they are, they also illustrate this question mark in the back of my head of who is this person that, that makes them and, and, and who do they know? What's their history? And I think this is a beautiful example of, where this conversation starts.
2: Yeah, and Arjun, I I apologize I when I shared this at the board meeting um you you pointed out that chikanik is actually the way you say thank you in um your language that's more closer to home here and I haven't mm-hmm. haven't made that sign yet but um it should be forthcoming.
1: Yeah, and 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 sorry I don't mean to to jump on but like when you say your language uh that's also kind of a, a really st- sort of a foreign concept for a lot of people here is because they don't see um not just denying it, any language as being something that they would own or necessarily have a responsibility for there's many people that just don't really um care they're very of the mind of. Well, we grew up learning English mostly. I would say everybody born after 1940, for example. And for anybody to say, we need to learn how to use these words, we need to learn this language. It's a bit like saying, why are you going backwards? What's the point? And it's, so I view language personally as uh, more of a tool as um, kind of like a a paint or any tool like that. And I think that's how people here view it as well, as these are just tools. They're not so monolithically important that they're embedded. It's the, the idea is the spirit behind them. What the reason for, like why are there some expressions and names that exist? Well, there's a reason for that. That's because that's how, over time, people kept the important things. And so learning what has been saved versus what has been lost is, or changed, that's also very important. And, and in a way, it's challenging this idea that English is somehow this language that is owned specifically by people. You, more or less white societies in the anglosphere around the world and for people for example here to say that well english is our native language now it challenges that idea it challenges that ownership the white ownership of the english language so i like to to point out you know this is why i like to invite people to experiment with these languages and to really push the boundaries of how they're used and what context you see them in. Because at the end of the day, they they are tools, but they're tools that are inspired by different ideas. And it's those inspirations and thought process that are important. It's not the use of the language itself that's important.
2: Arjun, on that note, do you have any... um images you wanted to talk about cuz i know you've done so much i know a lot of your work has to do with um, language and alphabets. If there's an image you wanted to i can move the slides to that.
1: Oh, um sure. Yeah, um, unless you wanted to go through some more of yours, i'm not sure what the order is if we have a Let's go order. let's go to
0: one of yours. Let's go to slide 7 there. Sorry, that think that's a great idea. Oh, and yeah. i just want to uh remind you both that we have some wonderful guests in the room with us and as questions or ideas come up from those mm-hmm. who are present with us today i just really want to encourage you to you know to take this time to share your thoughts and ask questions or so forth with um arjun and sorry
1: mm-hmm. yeah this photo um these are some mixed media panels i made because in 2000 and either 14 or 15, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I was inspired by a few things. One of them was a video online that I saw uh, made by somebody that I'm fairly good friends with now um, about the history of writing and kind of learning about its evolution over time and, and how writing is a lot more diverse, than we think it is. It's not just a one-for-one one concept of thinking about things. And what I was inspired by was in my limited experience with language study and indigenous languages, I realized most, if not all, in the Americas don't have a particular writing tradition, save for the not- most notable one, which is the Cherokee syllabary, which was invented to um the shapes were used to mimic those used by English speakers so that's why they look a little bit Englishy uh, that's how they evolved and I thought wouldn't it be really interesting if I were to take our old local language which people generally don't speak it's kind of gone here and Make a grinding system for it, so that at least there's a visible, tangible identity for all of these phonetic elements that exist in it. And that's what I did, and that's how I really got started into more full-time fine arts was just through this. It, it kind of took off and became a bit of a a, a bit of a thing locally anyways. And I, I, I like it because it shows people the the distancing of what it is like for people in a society to be all of a sudden face this new language and system that they have no idea what it is. And, and it's very distancing that way. And so I love to show this, but to also not explain it, <laughs> because that's the feeling that is you know what happens generations ago when people face this new system so even though it's based on an indigenous language it's still a foreign feeling and what i love about it is it lets me write anything i use the phonetic symbols to write any language and as an English speaker, I write a lot of English, <laughs> so I use it to write English, and it's sort of thumbing my nose at the idea of what indigenous language is, what, what revitalization is. It's, it's sort of like saying, well, I, maybe that's my language historically, but it's not now. But I can certainly do it in my own way that's rooted in symbols that are based on cultural concepts so it sort of begs that question of it's is it indigenous or not and mm-hmm. i love that gray area because that's that's where this whole idea sits in sits in this gray area
0: will you guide us through a few more of the um images that you provided argent and then we'll circle back to to stories or maybe they'll feel right to kind of kind of jump back and forth so let's Let's go forward, um sure, I'll try to be time. brief too sure. um this is um
1: this is called Gaga, and I used the the system to write um a story that I invented uh, based on creation of the major river systems in the peninsula because I was reading a lot of old um stories from different cultures. And not just in the region, but around the world, kind of about how geographic formations are told or are, are made in myth. And so I kind of made one. I said, Well, I invented this alphabet, so I'm just going to invent a story. And that's what I did. I, I envisioned um, this very large planet sized creature making these river systems out of claws. And this. Uh, ink painting um, that kind of reflects that. It's, I think it's still in the Pratt Museum. I think it's in their collection that could be on display. And it was actually the last thing I made for my exhibit there. So it was done like days before. I just had this last minute inspiration of, I'm I'm just gonna throw this together because I'm really interested in learning about these myths and legends. And um, yeah, (laughs) that was pretty Mm -hmm. fun.
0: Okay, let's look at a couple more.
1: Okay. Um, and this is one that was at a show at Bonnell. Uh, the end of 2019. Um, I was, that show was really inspired by spiritual practices and kind of learning how to navigate the differences um, respectfully without trivializing them because I see a lot of, I was just inspired by fusion and learning how to navigate ideas of fusion in a respectful manner. And something that is really recognizable uh, to most people in the Americas is the Cree and um, the Cree Ojibwe, and I believe mostly Eastern DNA cultures, conceptually have the medicine wheel. And that is something that um, I was taught briefly as a young person. And I like the idea of fusing that with contemporary beliefs and also honoring the European side of our ancestry, which brought the Orthodox Church. And in the Orthodox Church, some of the major symbols are the, the Four Gospels. So what I did is I combined local motifs and colors with the Gospels of the Four Evangelists and the, the medicine wheels. So I'm kind of like taking the concepts of, of three different places and traditions and, and, and made this piece out of it because I think this piece kind of represents, collectively, our local culture. Um, in in one kind of fused thing. And I call it a medicine compass because it's slightly inspired by um, the maritime location and tradition. So it it is meant to use more marine materials. Like I got that uh, metal hoop from, I think I got it from the, uh, what's that place in Homer? I forget the name of it. I always go there.
0: The gear shed or red marine. The whatever. gear shed. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's where it came yeah. from.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So in your work, you're you, you're really interested in kind of like centering the the complexity of like and the hybridity of your of your background. You've referred to it as like as a coming from a creolized people language and imagery mm-hmm. and so forth. And that's that is being authentic. Yeah. And
1: it's tricky because I, I love doing that, but I also am very hyper aware of doing it in a respectful way and not in a way that is meant to be a super high contrast or something that elicits um, that sense of conflict or contrarianism. Is So what I try to do is I try to make things that just seem like they're just a nice, gorgeous piece that sits somewhere that is very innocuous, but does come from this very complex idea of, of bridging some of these ideas together. Because I well, think. It's
0: interesting. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say for a moment that, you know, within the history of hybridity on a human level is, a, is, is colonization, which can take a brutal form. And so confrontation is really part of it and dissonance. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you're really trying to sort of driving at harmonization and and kind of um, in sense building building strength through images that unify symbols and draw them together.
1: Yes, that's exactly how I think of it. That's that's how like this piece came to be. This is how the writing came to be. It's a way to think about it as a whole. Uh, because for so long as a child, and I think a lot of people here um, I grew up with, and even my parents and the older generations, they're always learning that they are parts. You are a thing made of parts. You're like, you're a homunculus. <laughs> you're, you're some kind of thing put together. And so I'm really inspired by the idea of let's figure out and challenge people to get them to think of themselves as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what yeah. what makes that whole? What, what makes sure. it complete? Mm-hmm.
0: As we look at a few more of your images just in the next few minutes, maybe you could, yeah, just expound on that. And that so is this, really interesting. Attention. I, I wanted to show this
1: um, because even though it's not necessarily a painting or anything, this was inspired by some programs that the tribe was engaged in early last year about acknowledgement and indigenous issues and it was a fairly contentious year with COVID aside um, in, in scope of cultural figures and the American landscape and I have found that a lot of discussion about cultural figureheads and Social justice programs that were happening, they were kind of leaving out the idea that a lot of nations and tribes have their own specific thoughts on things. They have their own identities. They have their own goals. They have their own economies. They have their own everything. And so, inspired by that, I made this design that was conceptually uh, a conceptual version of a national flag for us locally to get people to think it's like we have our own state aside from our cultural and ethnic makeup we have our own state as well so like when i say about building those relationships if you meet an average person in an, an electric tribe they're going to associate their identity and culture very much with practical means. They're going to associate it with, okay, well, I'm a member, so I am eligible for these things, and we provide this, and we own this business, and so they think about it in those in those real life means. They don't think about it in terms of ethnicity so much. You really have to, to broaden to get to ethnicity. So I was inspired by the idea of how, how do we take that um, idea of, of identity and ethnicity? And then I had an epiphany one day uh, based on some controversies over, for example, the Confederate flag, was what if we married those two ideas together and, and made this, this identity And so I I designed this and it's got lots of symbolism and there's just not enough time. (laughs) Um, But I have a full document on it if people want to read it sometime. It's on my website as well. Uh, And what is really timely about it is some people really uh, liked it. I made a couple posts and I used it in a couple of my pieces and now it's very much being used in an official sense, it's on display at one of the meeting halls the tribe owns. And after a conversation yesterday, I learned that there are some plans for our native youth Olympic team to use it when they go to the next competition. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of excited for that. It, it started as something that's just an experiment, experimental concept, but became a real thing. Um, and is now getting its own history and legacy, and and that makes me very happy. I'm I'm really happy that people kind of jumped on that idea immediately and and said, yeah, this is something that that is unique, and special, and what makes us us.
0: So um, I I like to pick on on that thread of identity and how. Um, art-making by artists of all kinds can elevate the complexity and nuances of identity. And go Mm -hmm. back to Soray's imagery, um, if you would, maybe your second slide, Soray, in in this uh, presentation, and just um, lead us, guide us into how in your work and the things that you're making, um, you're exploring uh, ideas of identity related to um place and land and um the role of object making in that in that work Are you muted sorry I can't hear you
2: Yeah um I don't identity is really Something that I've spent a whole lot of time. Can you hear me now? Oh, I'm not sure. It says my internet connection is a little unstable.
0: You were saying that I identity isn't something that you've spent a, a lot of time focusing on, but Okay, fair enough. But I, but tell us, um, it's so interesting because when I when I look at these objects, and I, and I want you to really expound, but when I look at these objects and I see like this sort of river system that opens up into the salmon, you know, the imagery of the salmon, the flesh, you know, I think about bodies and the intersection of human and salmon bodies and interdependency. So it seems to me like an identity construct, but I, I'd love to hear how you think of it.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely agree. I um, I think the way identity comes through, it's not like a. It doesn't feel like I'm using my critical brain when I'm doing these works in terms of identity. Um, I have a lot of things to say about this image, but I mean, it definitely is this images um, of a river in Bristol Bay where between King Salmon. and Brown. So this, this one was probably taken in the springtime on my way to the fishing grounds. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I grew up spending my summers out there. And so that river and that tundra are kind of a part of my family. And um, I think uh, there's kinship in this. And this image, you know, we can see the landscape, the tundra as skin, and these rivers running through it like veins, and there's like a real kind of physical kinship that we can identify, I think, as human beings with a body looking at the earth and the um, the, the river as a, another body. And, um, you know, salmon, of course, and these, these incredibly wet, um, intertwined, tender landscapes are the blood of these places because they bring all these nutrients from the sea back up, just like the flesh of our own bodies. Um, and yeah, this is, yeah, I think just following red also is just thinking about colors as clues in understanding and clues in playing these kinds of games of association, um, has been a part of my work lately. Um, yeah. So, you know, just by using the color red, it, it brings up all of these other other associations. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, Arjun, I, I saw recently that you're doing some work with river conservation and different things like that. So um, maybe we can talk about that at some point. For sure. Now or... yeah. yeah, let's look at a but couple
0: gonna... more.
2: And I was just
1: going to say, I think what is really interesting about a lot of these conversations I've had is when people say, like you just said, Oh, I've I really worked with identity so much. And I think that's because as somebody who is not, um, indigenous, although you're not, you know, you're not in the tribe or anything like that, your family comes from, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to learn more, but, but you're somebody that, that lives here and and takes an interest in and since you live here there is that element of this land is also a part of your identity in in a way so i like when people kind of take responsibility for that it it doesn't mean like at the banel show somebody told me well well i consider myself a native because i was born here blah 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 it's like okay well (laughs) that's <laughs> that might not be, you know, correct, but it comes from a place of, of taking um stock and taking kind of responsibility and in your own grounding. And there is something about that that is identity making. So I I I, I really love to hear what people um non-native people, I love to hear what they call themselves culturally, what labels they use what terms they use do they just say white do they just say American do they say something specific did have they studied a lot of genealogy now they're all excited about a particular branch um so yeah I'm, I'm always interested in that. that that's so for me this is very identity making sorry let's yeah look at I a think few there's words. a really
2: interesting I think that's a really interesting conversation I've had just briefly with some other friends of my generation whose families um, moved to Alaska from elsewhere. And now we are, we are the generation that's grown up here and what our relationship to this landscape is. It's you know different than yours, who has this ancestral tie, but it's different than our parents, who has, have this fresher um, mm-hmm. experience of arriving in Alaska. Whereas in Asia, you are also in this boat, having been born and grown up here. Um, yeah, so this is another little, little booklet that I put together from some collages I made. Um, and I was trying to think of what my work has to do with language exactly, but I realized that I titled this piece, um, a book of rhymes. So I started thinking about these collages and these scale studies of these like shifting textures and just like a way and a place to think about the entanglement and how, Everything is totally iterative. All of these atoms and materials and um, that make up our world are just constantly remaking themselves in different forms and different meanings. Um, but it's all, it's all a kind of language. It's these little visual metaphors or visual, um, that you once you start playing this game, you start seeing it everywhere. Yes like for example um, so when yeah, i look we've, at you you know the soccer. go
0: ahead Right, well yeah i'm just thinking about like skin and the skins of all of these things are you know it's the skin of the the environment the surface and then what's within it that's the skin is is maybe pale or light white or cold and inside is this you know this light these these this redness this connectivity that um you bring you kind of stitch it together
2: yeah and and part of the work like the image on the right of the the uh turns and the the fishing boats it's part of this work is seeing how we're really not separate um like there are these distinctions that are made over time Um, where you can point at one thing and say that's water and another thing and that's rock, but really everything's interconnected. So humans actually move in a very similar way to birds and fish and whatnot. Um, And that's exciting because I feel like so much of our kind of environmental conversation about, you know, climate crises and whatnot is about trying to reintegrate, but we're actually already kind of integrated in the landscape. It's not something that's foreign to us. Uh, um and this is one of my latest projects um been making these um sun- long exposure pinhole cameras and i started just thinking about them as uh like a conversation with the sun um you know homer in particular is such a solar oriented town we look straight south and we look at the bay and we just all year round we watch the sun rise and fall in relation to the mountains. Um, and so I compiled um, these drawings and I left them as negatives because they they seem more familiar as a human. They look like uh, charcoal drawings, these gestures that you can make with your arm. Um, and it's really been a way to just like see literally the extremes of our seasons and how low the sun gets in the winter and how high in the summer and the different weather patterns that happen at different times of the year. So right now we are between this second cross-quarter and the spring equinox for reference, we're somewhere down there.
1: And I really enjoy how in this in these images the path of the sun is using like a charcoal texture it's very dark and dramatic and it gives it it gives the path its own really strong presence it's not just a trace line that you'd see in like a photo version um, or photo compilation so i like that that each the path is what the identity is
2: yeah and i like you know, you can see the contrast in the autumn equinox um, was often, you know, the weather starts coming in and we get the the rain and the fog. And so that was reflected in this image where the sun was blotted out from the sky. And so you get these dots where it peaked out behind the fog. And then this, um, by contrast, the spring, spring equinox, a lot of times we have this really cold and clear crisp, still kind of wintry weather. And so this sun line was a lot sharper um, than its opposite.
0: Such beautiful images from you both. So we have um you know several people who've joined the conversation to listen perhaps or to participate. And I, I wanted to invite, you know, anybody who might have a question or a comment for Fosare or Argent to, you know, to share if they'd like. Um Petra, would you like to um Unmute and just share your thoughts. Yeah, I actually. Um, hang on. Hi. I think you're muted. Sorry.
2: Yeah. Okay. Here, here we go. Um, I, um, I actually just said a, a
0: comment. Um, English is not my first language either. And uh, I find, I guess I'm older than uh, than some of you, but I find that, you know, when it comes to the question of identity, because I've lived away from my birthplace for so long, that identity somehow um, becomes an amalgam of all these different places and cultures I've experienced. How How do you feel about that, both of you?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think place has such a huge impact on who we are, you know, mentally and emotionally and physically too. Um so there's no way you can disconnect those things both in your own life and I think in your your past lives, your where I I
1: I wanted to say I think I agree and I think that's where a lot of the struggle that um native societies have here is that your identity you can't think about it in terms of it's not just a matter of your personal and family history and and where you live it's more complex there's a heavy political connotation to it like i said uh, earlier about the, the the practical aspects and your affiliation and your um your your membership your ethnicity it's it has political ramifications so that that's something that most people who who are not don't experience they don't experience the struggle of your culture and your affiliation is also a part of your existence as a human your your power as a human more or less and like Mm -hmm. for example there's Going back to land acknowledgement, that's very important, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really address the, the elephant in the room, which is uh, these nations would like more authority. <laughs> that, that's kind of like the end goal and that will always be the end goal. But because that's not going to happen because there's the way the world society works is a little bit different, um, it's much, it is airing on the side more of egalitarianism now. It's, there is some, there's not a, an easy overlap for that.
0: So no. you know, culture and identity
1: are very complicated.
0: Thank you for sharing your question or your, your observation, Petra. I wonder if, if others have sure. thoughts that they'd like to share. Thank you. I'm um, I'm reminded of this really powerful comment. Martha Crow, she used to, she was living in Homer for a time. Um, she went, she moved back to Ikeagic, um uh, I think about 18 months ago, but we were having some conversations around um, land acknowledgement after the production Alaska, Alaska was uh, after Vanel commissioned that and it, it toured here. And so we were having some conversations at Vanel and I was there with um, Carla Cope, who was also raised here, and Homer and some others. And and um, folks were sort of bravely speaking up about the awkwardness of really feeling a deep tie and identity in land here as non-Native folks. So what, you know, what, what to do with that, how to express that in ways that don't take um, power or make claim to something that one doesn't own. And and Martha offered this really amazing comment. She said, um you know, when you love the land, it owns you. It's just really interesting. I've thought about that ever since. That, I completely
1: agree with that sentiment. It's very uh It's powerful, it's it's like people are inconsequential at the end of the day. And that's not really, that is not the dominant worldview. And that's not just a Western worldview. It's Eastern, Western, Oceanic, African is it's always, it's the major goal of civilization is how people can, dominate and thrive on the landscape and and what the the weird truth is is that's how indigenous cultures are too we might express it differently might have had different histories but everybody kind of has those same problems those same uh everybody wants to develop everybody wants to grow everybody wants to just keep Progressing, and however they define that, and that's something that, which makes identity almost inconsequential. Um, and going back to political reasons, like if, if if it wasn't for the complicated relationship with United States and the and the greater planet, cultures like ours, we wouldn't have such strict. Um, we wouldn't maintain, I don't think, this is just hypothetically guessing out loud, I don't think we would maintain ancestral records as much and, and, and think of those as important in terms of membership. I think we would consider residency first because there are people here that we consider very much integral to our local culture that are not native at all and maybe they haven't even been here for very long but because they live here and they work with us or one of the programs or something we view them as very important and integral and i can sure as heck name a few <laughs> who are native that we would like to get rid of <laughs> but but that's that's just politics though that's the end of the day and so it's it's kind of as a result of our unique history and the policy of the United States, that we do have this current system in place, which favors this direct lineage. It's almost a bit like, um, it's a bit like having a forced, a forced, uh, uh, a forced I, I wouldn't say aristocracy, but it's, it's similar. It's sort of like saying, okay, well, but we only think you're legitimate if you, have blood ties to the people counted on this certain date and time and that's very arbitrary and so it in and that goes back to authority is culture can change um with political and arbitrary constructs
0: just as easily as as it can naturally involve
1: and so
0: are you saying um argent in a in a sense that if if the united states didn't have the racist you know, laws around blood quotient imposing themselves, you know, politically and culturally and economically on people. Yeah. Um, that isn't, that's not a, that's, that's not an organic or an indigenous or a natural way to, to, to catalog identity, if you will, it's something that's just kind of
1: yeah. enforced
0: because the objective of blood quotient, I mean, I think it's worth talking about that. The objective of doing that was to, gradually diminish the integrity of people, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and so. Yeah, um, and, but what's, what's interesting about that is, it's,
1: I couldn't say for sure that that's not what the nations themselves would do. They might have their own system of doing that. They might say, okay, well, okay, but, but it, it's the idea that it would be something that is coming from themselves. It's it's part of that self determination aspect, and there are many cultures um, around the world and in the Americas that are very structured and based on birthright in in class and society and roles and and where do you where do you draw the line between egalitarianism and which is a fairly modern concept um, globally and respecting those cultures? It's it's a very It's a very complicated thing to ask because on the one hand there is this role of these larger forces kind of dictating how these individual nations organize themselves but on the other hand depending on the group it is they might engage in those practices themselves on a micro level so So the world is very much in a place right now of having to navigate that concept. And it's very tricky. It's very complicated. Um, I I always am reminded of the wonderful um, English royal family who (laughs) are such powerful symbols. And it's kind of... And whether or not you... uh, whether or not you like them, or think the system is wrong, or think there there is something to say about having this persistent um, identity and and idea of this head of state, which is separate from your uh, ever changing political realm, and 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 any more critical view of it you have to also apply to societies with hereditary chiefs it's not just a one way um it's not just a one way of, of looking at that stuff you have to part of that open-mindedness and that dialogue is to understand that all these things exist in all people and yeah. so that's why i always try to say to people why do you call yourselves a white person? Why do you call yourself a white institution? Because almost in a way of doing that, then that's what you are. So- Perpetuating you have
0: to, white supremacy. <laughs> yeah,
1: you have, to, you have to figure out, and, and that's why I think our tribe specifically and non-Native people, I think we get along so well, <laughs> socially and culturally, um, we're very integrated in the in the public community, is because we have a similar prospect looking at us as what are we going towards? What's what do we want to be? What do we want to aspire to be? So we have these collective goals of figuring out what our aspirations are. So it's kind of it's kind of exciting. It's it's it's, it's it does speak to culture loss, but at the same time. It's optimistic to me because it's a way to
0: to reorganize and re-energize and look at the future. I see your work as an artist and and also So's work as as an artist, kind of resisting the um flattening of relationships to land, people, time, and material. Um, into a more complex and really expansive dialogue. It really resists, you know, the kind of um, uh, racializing language that's part of white supremacy, that's part of um, the system that surrounds us. And then, too, you know, I'm thinking, you know, those are things you're speaking of, but then I'm thinking, Soray, about your work, where you speak, one of your beautiful expressions is, Interest in the fluid entanglements of landscape, materials, light, and time. So art, your particular art, the way that you're making it, the materials and imagery that you're using are sort of resisting, um, you know, just even uh, the notion of what is the body and where does it, where does the human and the land, the fish and the water kind of begin and end. Would you talk a little bit more about that in your work? I I know we've looked at the images, but maybe there's perhaps something more you might want to say about that. Or maybe I just want to linger with those thoughts because they're so rich.
2: Yeah, I was going to say something about, um, you know, Arjun, at the beginning, you um, were talking about your work as, or you were talking about um, in the in your community people talking about all of your parts and just trying to want to make a whole. And I think there's a really interesting struggle, especially that stuff you were just talking about um, in terms of identity and uh, whatnot, where we we want, we want the parts, we want the distinction and the difference and that helps mm-hmm. us make meaning and helps us talk about certain things. Um, but we also want to acknowledge that it's all part of this continuum that's ever changing. Um, yeah, I guess I, I lost my 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 thread there, but I do think there's an interesting kind of uh, topic happening here, both with your work um, and with my work. And I think just culturally or on a broader scale, there's a struggle between um, wanting to find pride in differences, but also overcome the conflict that happens across those divides. Mm-hmm.
1: Especially when some are so um, loaded with, uh even controversial topics and ideas it's it's really difficult it's it's very um like uh, there is this underlying fear in a lot of uh, indigenous cultures of embracing influences from other cultures like like i was saying we're, we're very creolized but depending on who you talk to there there are some people who would say no we're completely native. we are native people, and then there are some people who would say no we're not we're we're European now and so that whole continuum is is there it's represented in in, in a little microcosm and it is very there are some heavy ideas so it's not it's it's so much more complicated than looking at a pie chart and, and pieces of a whole, it's also, okay, well, this piece over here, you also have to navigate these issues and these topics and this piece over here, you have to navigate this problem and this source of, you know, ongoing angst. And, and there is a history. And so um, I really enjoy talking to people like a Skywalker Payne, who uh, kind of, work with some of these newer ideas about uh something called ancestral healing and i first when i first heard that i did what anyone i know would do was roll my eyes and go good lord what's this um and then i learned about it a bit more and i realized oh this is a really valuable Thing to explore because it parses down it helps people process the things that they have learned about themselves and their culture and it helps them uh, process and deal with how past traumas may have influenced those spheres. and maybe that's a, a source of a personal block and I am always reminded of the time. Um, when I was studying Indigenous history in Canada at a Canadian university and learning about at the time there was a lot of work being done for reconciliation of a lot of the missionary school uh, traumas that happened there and in Alaska too. And Alaska has only just barely touched a, a lot on that history, but Canada has really been on the forefront and uh, actually watching the hearings of the testimony and what was going on. And and it, it was very, very hard for me to watch because even though I'm so far removed from that society, because the, the missionary, quote unquote, missionary generation was several generations ago now, at least five or six. Um, even though that happened so long ago, and I don't have any living grandparents, and even if they were alive, they wouldn't remember it. I could see this straight line of in, in my local cultural history of where those things may have occurred and how they influence thinking and how people gravitate towards certain practices, and labels, and, and names for things, and and so it's generations and generations of pain mitigation uh, through language, through action, through behavior. And
0: and you're uh, doing, it, it, you're it, contributing to that, Arz, and I, you know, I'm thinking yeah. as you're speaking of this, these really beautiful recent works that you made, are that these Matryoshka dolls. So, could mm-hmm. we, thank you for taking the lead, and, and uh, yeah, could you talk a little bit about, so what are we looking at, and why did you make this? This is These are so beautiful. Well,
1: so something that I was really interested in lately is the idea of iconoclasm, because I was thinking, I've been doing so much work specifically um, in cultural themes that are related to Indigenous and Ninilchik and Denaida Roots, and then I was starting to realize I because I kind of just easily say in casting, oh, yeah, we're part European, blah, blah, blah. But then I remember, well, maybe that's not a fully explained uh, part of our our history. And maybe that is something, ironically, because we haven't shown in a certain way. Maybe that is a source of, of progress. And so I thought, I was thinking, what can I use that, is like unmistakably East European or something like that. And then I remembered, uh, here and growing up, um, seeing nesting dolls. They're very common. you see them in in gift shops here. And I remember going to the spit and all the gift shops on the spit and just seeing all those beautiful lined up dolls with all the, the, the painting. And, and I thought, I'm going to use that, uh, I'm going to use that silhouette because it's so iconic, but then I'm going to apply this other kind of experience to it and very, very iconoclastic. And And so it's, it's sort of, this particular set is sort of meant to evoke um, um, Kenai birch bark. It's supposed to evoke a little bit more of natural or plant life, but at the same time, it still has this, this shiny, um, opulence of, of a valuable, precious metal. And cause that is something that our culture I think has now is we love metal things. We're definitely the people that will get, like, for example, my, my mother just framed her wonderful painting and she got the, the biggest, most gold leafiest frame <laughs> you could see because that's very us. We love those, and, and even the people who are, are very um, involved in the church, they have their elaborate uh, icons. And, and so anything that's gilded is, is us. And so I thought, well, that is a good thing to use. And to go back to language, these marks on the top half of the dolls, um, they represent, of course, notches and bark, but also clouds, because that is one of the very few cultural things that my family knows, we know that way, way back in the day we were part of um one of the Sky clan groups locally. Um, but this particular shape that looks a bit like a sideways nine is actually the first letter of the alphabet I created, which is designed to look a bit like a spruce root drumstick, so I'm using that letter. In, in in a different orientation and in a different way to to make this overall pattern and so it's kind of like looping in back on itself where now it's now it's removed from being used as a letter to being used as oh, a part in this whole nother creation and, and bigger pattern. So I'm really enjoying this and i've I'm working on i I finished two more and I'm working on another set even. <laughs> With different styles and motifs, and and I, Let's I can't Look at that stop. other set.
0: Is the dark set in there too? Did, you had another? I, I don't
1: have a photo of. It. I didn't okay, photo of it.
0: all right. Yeah, yeah sorry. Beautiful. <laughs> I'm just I'm thinking a little bit about the courage to, um, you know, express and um, the the idea of iconoclasm. It's it, it, to me, it's a sort of a heavy um, and a negative sounding word for something that is really a brave and integrative effort. I'm thinking about the work that, you know, Linda Infante Lyons is doing, you know, here's a painter, you know, Mm -hmm. of uh, Supiak, of Lutic origin, who who, as part of her family story, you know, is um, both Eastern European and and indigenous. And she's sort of elevating that complexity through that layered imagery where you see, like Mm -hmm. um, a Madonna-like woman, um, in relationship to the land and its life-giving power, in the way that you, might have historically, in an icon, in a very gilded icon, um, yeah. seen the Madonna holding um, the Christ Child, but now it's now it's a seal, it's a bird, it's a you know a fish or something. And so I feel it's an interesting, entirely um, different way, but with a similar um, integrative intent that you. Explore
1: this. Yeah, I, I purposely I because the one thing that I always thought was odd about the dolls growing up was these very silly faces and lips and, and they're very um all very white <laughs> of course. Uh, so even though that was a part of our culture and our story, it felt very distant because those painting styles were just different. And then when I realized I should just do my own that doesn't even involve faces. Um, so, like when I did this set, it was kind of a tribute to older designs and, and weaving and sewing and um, because there's not a lot of uh, iconography in the history of of objects made here. There's very little. There's a couple dolls, but they're not in. They're not made in a manner of being objects that are valued in a certain context. It, it, I, I could go into it, but but when you look at the, the main artworks and the styles and the clothing and um, everything is very pattern oriented, very geometric. And so this is anything having to do with that kind of heraldry or regalia is very, strictly geometric. There's not a lot of totem symbols, not a lot of any of that, um, at least not in this area. So I want, I really wanted to honor that by using something that is very associated with iconography and human expression, but then to use the palette of an iconoclastic style um, and just keep them without specific features. But They're still unmistakably nesting dolls, just because of the silhouette and the Mm
0: -hmm.
1: the graduation.
0: Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so much, both of you, for sharing with us today and and exploring some powerful ideas. Um, again, I want to take another opportunity too to thank our our listeners, wherever you might be, and those who've Mm -hmm. chosen to join this room and. If anybody has comments or questions that they'd like to share, you know, just I really want to welcome that. Well, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you so much for giving your time to this work and this dialogue. And um, on behalf of Beno Street Art Center, which is situated within the tribal lands of the Noltek village tribe. We help me say it properly. Arjun, is it Michiltna? Is that the right way to say?
1: Oh, Michiltana, and it's it's Mich- a it's kind of a neologism. So however you would like to say it, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Michiltana. Mm-hmm. And close. It's really a privilege to um, share this, you know, these dialogues with all of you. Um, we'll be back in a, a couple weeks with. Um, Dasha Kelly Hamilton, a a poet who is the Poet Laureate of Wisconsin and moving between uh, Milwaukee and Anchorage, um, sharing her work. So thank you again. Take good care. Stay well and be in touch with your ideas.